ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Don Guerra. And now for today's environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Thursday, December 23rd. I'm Benedict Jones, filling in for Nathaniel Weinsapfel. A recent study from the Indiana University Department of Geography has found that the burrow holes left behind by the cicadas that emerged last summer will help improve water quality in the local wildlife areas. The holes in the ground allow water to infiltrate the soil and help hydrate plants, which allow them to grow more and become stronger. This will eventually lead to cleaner water and less water runoff. This will be more of an occurrence in rural areas as human activity has largely compacted the soil in the urban areas where the cicadas emerged. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin has decided not to vote in favor of President Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan, resulting in the Senate Democrats not having the necessary 50 votes to allow the legislation to pass. With no hope in sight to save the legislation, It is likely that this will lead to devastating consequences in the efforts to combat climate change by not meeting the emission-cutting pledges under the Paris Agreement. A large portion of the legislation was meant to promote cleaner energy and help reduce pollution, key steps in the fight against climate change. Despite this setback, some members of Congress are optimistic for its future, including Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey, who hopes that the specifically environmental portions of the legislation take a new form in a different bill. According to NASA, the most environmentally friendly Christmas tree is an actual tree from a tree farm. While many people think that plastic trees end up being more beneficial to the environment, this is not the case. The amount of carbon dioxide that a real tree would take in and convert to oxygen in the 8 to 12 years on average it takes for a Christmas tree to grow is much more beneficial than a plastic tree. No matter how many years you reuse an artificial tree, it will eventually be thrown away and may take a thousand years to decompose. Instead, many cities often collect Christmas trees to grind them up into mulch, which helps more plants grow. If you want to be more environmentally friendly this holiday season, a real Christmas tree is the perfect addition to your holiday the festivities. Community Bike Project. In today's feature report, WFHB News spoke with Jacob Brunig, a volunteer for the Bloomington Community Bike Project. Brunig discusses how the B-Town Bike Project emphasizes sustainability in the community. This is coming up later in the program. And now for our environmental headline stories. KPVI reports that Governor Eric Holcomb has appointed a top employee at the state's Environmental Oversight Agency to serve as its new leader. 
Brian Rockensus began his tenure as commissioner of the Indiana Department of Environmental Management on December 13th. Rockensus spent the last five years as IDEM chief of staff, managing daily operations, governmental affairs, and rulemaking priorities. He previously was IDEM's liaison to the Indiana General Assembly. Rockensus earned his bachelor degree at Ball State University and a master's degree in public administration from Indiana University at Purdue University, Indianapolis. Southern Indiana has recently expressed the view that they don't like solar installation anywhere close to towns. The latest casualty is in Princeton. The Princeton Commission voted not to recommend rezoning requests for 15 parcels proposed in the footprint of Aravon, Tanaska's Gibson Solar Farm. The commission voted in October not to recommend a proposal for property on the southeast and southwest sides of the city that is within the city of Princeton's two-mile zoning jurisdiction. Some of the power generated by the project would have gone into the Princeton substation to serve about 300 to 400 homes. Jared Pitts of Tanaska told the Plan Commission Wednesday that some 510 acres were removed from the October proposal so that it would no longer abut any protesters' property. He said the parcels southeast of the city are 1.5 miles from Princeton's corporate limits, and the parcels on the southwest side are more than a mile from city limits, separated by U.S. 41. When we think of forests, we tend to think of country woodlands, but urban forests are important also. In cities, trees provide stormwater control, filter air pollution, reduce heat, sequester carbon dioxide, and offer many other services that would cost the city millions of dollars to reproduce. In a new report called Forests for Indie Urban Forest Protection Strategy, the Indiana Forest Alliance urges Indianapolis officials to take action to protect the city's urban forests and presents a plan for doing so. The Alliance contends that land development, particularly in environmentally sensitive areas in the city, threatens to decrease the number of urban forests and potentially shift the cost of their roles to Indianapolis and Marion County residents. According to the Forest Alliance, almost 15% of Marion County, or about 59 square miles, is covered with trees. Only nine square miles of those woodlands are within city property and therefore under its protection. The rest of the woodlands, 50 square miles, including about 4,200 urban forests, larger than one acre, are privately owned and have few, if any, protections from being cut down, degraded, or destroyed by development. According to a tree management plan commissioned by the Indianapolis Department of Public Works, the city's nine square miles of trees supply almost $10 million in annual benefits. Despite evidence of the financial benefits of its urban forests, the city hasn't made their preservation a priority. Indiana Forest Alliance Executive Director Jeff Stant noted, quote, What you find, if you look at most plans that the city has produced in the last decade, is a consensus that these forests are important to conserve. What's missing is the will to implement these plans to conserve the forests, end quote. Last year, the Trump administration approved a private 200-mile industrial mining road that would cut through Alaska's gates of the Arctic National Preserve. The Ambler Road, 
would cross 2,900 streams and 11 major rivers and would jeopardize one of the longest land migrations on Earth, that of the Western Arctic caribou herd. The road would also forever alter some of the last great wild landscapes on the planet, jeopardizing the subsistence livelihoods that the region's people have depended on for millennium. Further, the road would threaten the largest spawning population of she-fish in northwest Alaska in the Kobuk River, which is crucial for people's subsistence in the area. Critics of the project point out that the permitting process was deeply flawed. Basic information was missing from the review, including the exact location of the road, making an accurate analysis impossible. An investigation by Politico found that Alaska Native communities' concerns were marginalized in the review process. The Biden administration can halt permits for the proposed road until a new rigorous environmental, cultural, and subsistence review is accomplished and the far-reaching consequences of the project are fully understood. Specifically, the U.S. Department of the Interior and Army Corps of Engineers can suspend the project until a new review becomes available. According to the New York Times, the Environmental Protection Agency on Monday announced strengthened limits on pollution from automobile tailpipes in a bid to reduce a major source of the carbon dioxide emissions that are heating the planet. The more stringent rule would require passenger vehicles to travel an average of 55 miles per gallon of gasoline by 2026, from just under 30 miles per gallon today. That would prevent the release of 3.1 billion tons of climate-warming carbon dioxide through 2050, according to the EPA. It would save about 360 billion gallons of gasoline from being burned, leading to a 15% annual reduction in the nation's gasoline consumption by 2050. The Biden administration is expected to lean heavily on executive action and regulations like the new tailpipe rule, after the centerpiece of the president's climate agenda was essentially scuttled on Sunday by Senator Joe Manchin, the West Virginia Democrat, who holds the swing vote in an evenly split Senate. The tailpipe rule, which will take effect in 60 days and apply to model years 2023 to 2026, is a return of sorts to regulations enacted by the Obama administration in 2012, which required that passenger vehicles sold by automakers achieve an average of roughly 51 miles per gallon by 2025. President Donald Trump weakened the standard in 2020 to about 44 miles per gallon by 2026. President Biden signed an executive order last week to make the federal government's operations carbon neutral by 2050. Under the new plan, the government would not purchase any more gas-powered vehicles and facilities owned or leased by the federal government would be powered by wind, solar, and nuclear energy. Federally owned buildings would also convert to only using green construction materials. Quote, the executive order will reduce emissions across federal operations, invest in American clean energy industries and manufacturing, and create clean, healthy, and resilient communities, end quote, the White House said in a statement. The Biden administration's efforts to reduce the federal government's carbon emissions could have a ripple effect across the economy, said Sarah Bloom Raskin, Duke University law professor and former deputy secretary of the U.S. Department of Treasury 
under President Obama in a recent interview, according to the Washington Post. Bloom Raskin said, quote, the government is a significant driver of demand. It doesn't tell the private sector entities what to do, but to some extent it will demand a certain kind of good and service so companies can shift what's being made, end quote. As the country's largest employer, the federal government has about $650 billion in annual purchasing power for goods and services. That makes the government and its purchasing plans significant factors for businesses and manufacturers looking for lucrative contracts as they decide what products to offer. Two locations very distant from one another recently scored victories over fossil fuel extraction. In Australia, Santos and Murphy Oil announced they're abandoning their plans to drill for oil in the Great Australian Bight. BP, Chevron, and Norwegian oil giant Equinor have all abandoned their plans to drill there, and now only Bight Petroleum remains with the intention to drill for oil in the Bight. However, earlier this year, the regulator held up the company's plans. The fight against oil drilling in the Bight is part of an ongoing campaign to protect Australia's wild whale sanctuary. Saying that the price of oil extraction is prohibitively high, Greenland's government officials announced the suspension of all new oil and glass exploration. Kalistat Lund, the country's Minister for Agriculture, Self-Sufficiency, Energy and Environment, said that the government, quote, takes the climate change seriously. We can see the consequences in our country every day, and we are ready to contribute to global solutions to counter it, end quote. At least six major automakers, including Ford, Mercedes-Benz, General Motors, and Volvo, and 30 national governments pledged at COP26 in Glasgow to work toward phasing out sales of new gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles by 2040 worldwide and by 2035 in leading markets. But some of the world's biggest car manufacturers, including Toyota, Volkswagen, and the Nissan-Renault Alliance, did not join the pledge, which is not legally binding. And the governments of the United States, China, and Japan, three of the largest car markets, also abstained. The announcement made during international climate talks was hailed by climate advocates as yet another sign that the days of the internal combustion engine could soon be numbered. Electric vehicles continue to set new global sales records each year and major car companies have recently begun investing tens of billions of dollars to retool their factories and churn out new battery-powered cars and light trucks. It should be pointed out that the pledges made at climate conferences have never been achieved. It is also true that Indiana's legislature is not preparing for a switch to electric vehicles and is still favoring coal and natural gas for electricity generation. According to the Energy News Network, the Midwest does not shine in national clean energy policy ranking. An analysis of 100 major cities by the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy revealed that nationwide, cities are largely not on track to meet their own greenhouse gas reduction goals and or they don't collect data that would allow them to meaningfully log such emissions reductions. Cities were rated on building sustainability, renewable energy, transportation, government initiatives, and community impact. 
Overall, Midwestern cities lagged behind the coasts, with only three cities in the region ranking in the top 20. Minneapolis at number 4, Chicago at 12th, and St. Paul at 20th. Madison at 39th was the most improved city nationwide, while Milwaukee dropped significantly from last year's report to 53rd. Indianapolis is the only city in Indiana to make the top 100 list, ranking 64th. Madison climbed to the 39th spot, up 25 from last year, in part because of its investments in clean transportation and electric vehicles. They include requiring all new parking structures to have electric vehicle charging and rolling out an electric bus rapid transit system by 2024. Quote, The city has initiated a complete overhaul of our fleet operations with a dramatic ramp up to over 60 electric vehicles, more than 100 hybrid electric vehicles, and Wisconsin made biodiesel for trucking, end quote, said Jessica Price, the city's resiliency and sustainability manager. Price added that the Madison Fire Department is running North America's first and only operational electric fire engine, made in Wisconsin. Three quarters of Madison City's operations are powered by renewable energy with the goal of 100% renewable power for city operations by 2030. Madison has installed 1.3 megawatts of solar on city facilities and 2 megawatts throughout city-supported community solar installations. And now for our feature, WFHB News spoke with Jacob Brunig, a volunteer for the Bloomington Community Bike Project. Brunig discusses how the B-Town Bike Project emphasizes sustainability in the community. We turn to WFHB anchor Benedict Jones for more. The Bloomington Community Bike Project is a local bicycle co-op that recycles bicycles back into the community. Jacob Brunig, volunteer for the B-Town Bike Project, says affordability and sustainability are also at the forefront of the organization. So we're a local community nonprofit. We're part of the Center for Sustainable Living, and we serve a bunch of purposes. So first and foremost, our goal is to, you know, create sustainable transportation, both financially sustainable and environmentally sustainable transportation here in Bloomington. We do that by expanding access to cycling for all kinds of folks, whether that is um, helping people complete repairs on their own bikes and teaching people how to repair bikes, whether that is selling um, used bikes at low cost, or through our earn-a-bike program where people can come in, volunteer with our shop, and then earn a bike of their own that they can then fix up. Additionally, during the peak pandemic, we had a program going where we had um, free bikes for folks who were not able to access transportation for various reasons. Um, We actually had an opportunity for people to receive a free bike from us without doing earn-a-bike, just able to take one, one home that day. Brunig says the Bicycle Collective operates with a team full of devoted volunteers. He describes some of the multifaceted work he does as a volunteer. Yeah, so it kind of can vary day to day. Sometimes I will work a shift with folks, one of our open hours. During those times, I will help folks repair bikes. I will assist people who are there with their earn-a-bike projects, and I'll repair bikes that have come in that you might get that we're working on selling. Other times, I will do work sort of when we're closed, like some of our volunteers do, to repair older bikes to be resold because we finance, you know, our rent and a lot of our expenses through selling used bikes as well. And then finally, I help with projects like when we'll do sort of big clean-out projects, big storage realignment projects. The B-Town Bike Project includes several programs. 
the Earn-A-Bike program, maintenance classes, and ladies' night. Brunig explained what each of these programs entail. So Earn-A-Bike is definitely our most popular one. What we do is we receive donations from people in the community of bikes and everything from fully functional, ready to go, to a bare frame that is badly bent. And so with these bikes, we're able to have folks who come in, they'll help us in the shop in various ways, whether that's cleaning, organization, light repair of other people. And after doing that for a shift, they're able to select a bike that needs to be repaired to be their own. Then with our help, they can fix up this bike and it can become theirs. And then additionally, once they're, you know, out riding it, they can come back to us and, you know, get help with repairs and things like that. Other great programs are things like, you know, we have our open nights, like I mentioned. We also have a special one, like you just heard on ladies' night. That is Thursday nights, and it is from 6 to 9, and for folks who are female identified, just again, because spaces like the Bike Project can, you know, we want them to be welcoming to all people, and some people are much more welcome when there aren't men around. So it's another great, great thing we do there. And then finally, one more that we haven't talked about yet is kids' bikes. So we often have a lot of children's bikes. Kids' bikes are always free. They don't need to be earn a bike at all. Any child who wants a bike can always come and get one from us. We often also include a helmet with that as well. As a member of the Center for Sustainable Living, Brunig says the Bike Project wants to emphasize climate sustainability. So again, you know, biking is a wonderfully sustainable transportation, fully person-powered. And, you know, it it hits on so many levels because obviously there's the first of, you know, biking rather than driving a car certainly helps with CO2 emissions. The shop itself also helps in a lot of ways as well. You know, bikes that are disused are often thrown away, end up in landfills, things like that, which is no good because frequently they can be reused really easily. Bikes are kind of a wonderfully uh, fixable thing. You can find old parts and make make a lot of not working bikes into one working bike pretty easily. The other big way is, you know, the sort of shift towards more sustainable transit sometimes requires means that folks don't have. Like our town has a lot of really wonderful local bike shops that are incredible. They sell great bikes, they have great repair services, but for some of our community members, you know, that's just cost prohibitive. So it's making sure that that's something that's available to everyone, not just folks who are able to afford um, to go to shops themselves. As the home of the Little 500 race and endless bike paths and trails, Bloomington is famously a cycling city. Brunig explains how the bike project looked at this and thought, how can we fulfill a need here in the community? Bikes are wonderful and abundant here in this town, but they can also be fairly expensive, especially right now with the pandemic affecting supply chain. And so, you know, our primary purpose is to take that barrier away, whether that's selling, you know, a used bike at a much lower cost or doing an earn a bike or even a free bike for a child or someone in need. That's our primary thing, because, again, we have we have a lot of cycling culture in this town. We also have a lot of cycling infrastructure. We have the B-Line. We have all kinds of great greenways. We have the 7th Street Path that just opened. You know, it's a really good, safe place to be on a bike. But so many of our community members are still unable to get that bike, get that initial step to get them going. Brunig says the Bloomington Community Bike Project is always looking for more volunteers. If you want more information on the organization, visit btownbikeproject.org. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Don Guerra. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. 
We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for our events calendar. Take a winter morning hike the day after Christmas on Sunday, December 26th from 9 to 10 a.m. at Spring Mill State Park. Join Volunteer Anthony for a guided hike on Trail 5 around Spring Mill Lake. Enjoy the peacefulness of nature while hearing all about Spring Mill State Park. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center for a one-mile moderate hike. Enjoy critter feeding at the Nature Center at McCormick's Creek State Park on Sunday, December 26th from 2 to 3 p.m. Did you know toads use their eyes when swallowing food? Watch them in action at the Nature Center. This is an indoor event, so please wear a mask. Not too far up the road, you have the opportunity to participate in the Fort Harrison 2021 Trail Challenge. Celebrate the 25th anniversary of Fort Harrison in the form of a Trail Challenge. This is a non-competitive activity to explore all the park's trails by the end of the year. Set your own pace. It starts now and ends on December 31st, 2021. The first day hike of 2022 will take place at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, January 1st, 2022, from 9 to 10.30 a.m. Take either the long or short hike, then meet at the Spring Mill Inn for refreshments in the Lakeview Room. The long hike starts at 9 a.m. on Trail 3, which is partially rugged. The short hike begins at 10 a.m. on Trail 6, which is short, easy, and paved. While indoors, you must wear a mask. Plan now to participate in the 9th Annual First Day Trail Run and Walk at the Fairfax State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Saturday, January 1, 2022, from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. This is an untimed, non-competitive run-walk. Choose from a 3.7-mile, 2.9-mile, or 1.3-mile course. Advanced registration is online at bit.ly forward slash firstdayrun2022. You can also register the same day between 2.15 and 3.15 p.m. at the Bayview Shelter. If you go indoors, you must wear a mask. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's news brief was produced by WFHB reporter Nathaniel Weisamfel. Today's feature was produced by Cade Young. David Lyman assembled the script and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly, that's me, compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. 
For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Don Guerra. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. 